12:72. If you're a guest with us, we've been working verse by verse through the book of Titus, and for the last several weeks, we have been in the first section of Titus chapter 2, and that's where we'll remain this morning. I'm going to speak for a few minutes today on this subject, instructions to the old and the young. And while you're finding your place there, I have book recommendations that I told you I would have. Um, I secured the help of my wife with these. And so the first one I want to recommend to you is called The Christian Lover, The Sweetness of Love and Marriage in the Letters of Believers. And so this is a little compilation of letters during courtship and marriage and after marriage and facing death uh, between figures throughout church history. And so that may be of interest to you. For the subject matter that we'll be dealing with today and next Sunday, uh, a book entitled A Wife After God's Own Heart by Elizabeth George. 12 Things That Really Matter in Your Marriage. Uh, the next one is called Pursue the Intentional Life by Gene Fleming. I've actually read this book as well. It is excellent for those in midlife. Uh, there's much wisdom to be gleaned there. And then uh, Susan Hunt, Aging with Grace, Flourishing in an Anti-Aging Culture. And then finally, and I'll be making reference to this one a few times in the sermon today, Spiritual Mothering, the Titus II Model for Women Mentoring Women by Susan Hunt. And all of these recommendations are on the website with links if you want to go there and find them. Okay? Titus chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse number 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Many years ago, after speaking to a group of pastor's wives and discovering that the majority of them were working outside of the home, author and widow to the famous missionary Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott, wrote an article entitled, Where Are the W-O-T-T's? Where are the women of Titus II? And she asked, where are the godly older women who are to teach the younger women how to manage their children and their homes? She felt that there was a need for older godly women to pour their lives into those of younger women. And she was exactly right. Paul, 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said the same exact things. And what was true in the first century is also true in the 21st century. We need older, godly women teaching younger women about these matters. And these kind of women are described in this text. Sandwiched between the instructions of older men and younger men is Paul's instructions for older and younger women. The church needs to hear the words of this text. Paul, in clear, concise form, gives us the description of roles and responsibilities for men and women in the church and in the home. And what you will find in this passage is contrary to what the world says that men and women should be doing. This passage, in essence, is a blueprint for discipleship in the life of the church. Older men are to disciple younger men. Older women are to disciple younger women. We were never meant to live our Christian lives alone. And so in this passage, Paul gives instructions to the old and to the young. And today we're going to look at his instructions to older women and briefly the beginning of his instructions to younger women. So look with me first of all in verse 3 in the first part of verse 4. And there we'll see his instructions to older women. Now... What does he mean by older women? Well, if you read the text carefully with me, he does not define what he means by older women. And I'm reluctant to do that as well. <laughs> However, we know from ancient Greek literature that the word translated older was used for someone as young as 50. But do you know that when I was studying this, I came across John MacArthur's comments, and he disagreed. He said that when you consider childbearing ages, as well as the length of time it takes to raise children, it seems reasonable to take older women as referring to women that are at least 60 years old. He goes on to say that is the age that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9 in regard to widows who were to be cared for and receive financial assistance from the church. So I think I'll just let you decide today between 50 and 60 or something else. Older women. And I want you to note in the text that the instructions that he gives is just like the instructions that he gives for older men. It corresponds with the temptations that women face in this category of age on a daily basis. And so he tells us, first of all, in verse number three, what older women are to be. And he says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine. 
the word likewise connects verse 3 to verse 2, and it suggests that the qualities that Paul outlines in verse 3 for older women parallels the qualities that Paul outlines in verse 2 for older men. And so if you are an older Christian woman, there is a certain pattern of behavior that is expected of you by God. And the first thing he says in verse number three is that you are to be reverent in your behavior. The word reverent literally means fitting for the temple or to be suitable for what is sacred. This word has the root meaning of being priest-like, and it came to refer to that which is appropriate to holiness. And so what Paul is essentially telling older women is that they are to be godly examples of holiness in their home and in the church. And I want you to note carefully, as you'll see in the progression of the text, that this first characteristic that he gives, reverent in behavior, is the most important of all the other characteristics because it informs all of the other characteristics that he will lay out in verse 3, in verse 4, and in verse 5. Now, the Bible gives us examples of what older believing women who are reverent in behavior look like. And one such example was Anna, who together with the aged Simeon waited in the temple for the coming of Israel's Messiah. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 37 to 38, this is how Luke described her. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Older women are to be like Anna. They are to demonstrate a holiness of life. They are to demonstrate that their lives are centered on Christ that their lives are devoted to the worship of the one true and living God, that their lives are set apart to serve God, and that their lives are devoted to keeping a faithful and prayerful presence among the people of God. But we don't just see an example of this reverence and behavior in the life of Anna. In 1 Timothy Paul describes for Timothy a picture of a reverent woman. It's a controversial passage, but people look for trouble in this text instead of taking it for the emphasis that Paul is giving here, that of reverence and godliness and holiness of life and behavior. And this is what Paul tells Timothy that a reverent woman should be. And look like and act like in 1st Timothy chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works that a woman carries herself in godliness 
and holiness with good works. She's reverent in her behavior. And like the older men, older women are to be a stabilizing influence and an example of spiritual maturity to the younger generations in the church. And the only way you can be that stabilizing influence in the life of the church is to be reverent, godly, holy in your demeanor and behavior. That's why Paul tells Titus, if you'll notice in verse 3, that older women should not be slanderers. Now, obviously, from this second instruction, we can surmise that slanderous speech was a problem in Paul's day, just like it's a problem in our day. This word slanderer that he uses is the same word that he uses in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11 to describe the wives of deacons. It's a word from which we get our English word, devil. And what Paul is essentially telling Titus to teach the older women of the church is that as an older Christian woman, you are not to be devilish in your speech. Then in your conversations and in the course of your life, you are not to engage in gossip. You are not to spread rumors. You are not to say unkind words about others. You are not to damage reputations. And while older men face the temptation of being cranky, as you all agreed with me two weeks ago, older women, according to Paul, face the temptation of developing a critical, uncontrolled spirit. And that's why Paul tells Titus to teach the older women of the church not to be slanderers. That older women are to exercise self-control in the use of their words, They're to exercise self-control in their Facebook posts. They're to exercise self-control in their text messaging. They're not to disguise their slanderous, devilish, accusatory speech in the form of a prayer request or a concern or a burden that they just have to get off their shoulders and share with someone else. A conversation guised under prayer in which no prayer ever happens in the conversation. And older women are to refuse to listen to or promote unholy, slanderous, demeaning speech. And according to scripture, this is a likely temptation that older women would face. And I would remind you this morning of the powerful truth that James gives us about this area of our lives in James chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. He reminds us that no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. My sisters, these things ought not to be so. You should not bless the Lord with the same mouth in which you curse your brothers or sisters in Christ. 
Finally, you'll notice in verse 3 that Paul lists another negative instruction, telling Titus that older women are not to be slaves to much wine. Now, the original language in the text here is strong. It's admonishing older women not to become enslaved to much wine so that the wine owns them and dominates them and controls them. The emphasis of the text and this admonition is on the word enslaved. Greek scholar William Mount said this, Alcoholism must have been a severe problem in that day since it is an issue in the appointment of church leaders in every single list. And while this is true in almost every culture, it was especially true in the land of Crete where they viewed heavy drinking as a virtue. The ancient church leader John Chrysostom saw this problem as arising out of the use of alcoholic medicines to combat the bodily afflictions of old age. And so Paul is warning older women who turn to strong drink, who turn to drugs, who turn to even legal substances to escape from life or to numb the pain of life, tarnish their dignity and reverence, and they forfeit their influence in the life of the church. It's a purity of life that he is talking about. And don't you see how in each of these instructions, the first instruction overpowers them all? Be reverent in your behavior. Live a holy, godly life. Be reverent in your speech. Don't be a slanderer. Be reverent in the daily living of your life. Don't allow your life to become enslaved to any habit practice or vice by which you could tarnish or lose your influence in the lives of others. Be reverent in your behavior. Susan Hunt in her book Spiritual Mothering said it this way, these characteristics indicate spiritual depth and strength. They also imply vulnerability. The older woman must be willing to yet let a younger woman look into her life and learn from it. Look into her life and see her holiness and her godliness. Look into her life and see how she speaks and carries herself in all forms of conversation. Look into her life and see how she carries herself in every circumstance, even in the frailty of aging. So there it is, older women, reverend in behavior self-controlled in your conversations and sober-minded refusing to be enslaved to anything that would cause you to forfeit your influence are these your goals in life are these characteristics on the forefront of your mind older women as you seek god in prayer to shape you into the mature christian woman that he has called you and desires for you to be would those closest to you say that you bring that kind of strength and stability and dignity and reverence to your family and to your church family? Or do those closest to you avoid you because you're so critical and you're so unrestrained in your behavior and in your words? 
This is what older women are to be. And then he moves on at the end of verse 3 and into the beginning of verse 4. And he teaches what older women are to do. Now look carefully at the text. It's helpful. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Now in this text, Paul clearly outlines a specific work that God has ordained older women to accomplish. Notice carefully in the text. Look at it carefully. The responsibility of teaching and training the younger women is placed on the older women, not Titus. Do you see it in the text? It is placed on the older women, not Titus. Now, this does not mean that Titus relinquishes his responsibility as pastor to teach the younger women. As I showed you last week in verses 7 and 8, Titus is to be an example to the entire congregation, including the older and younger women. And he is to be an example for them through the way he lives his life, and he is to be an example for them through his teaching. So it doesn't mean he relinquishes his role as pastor in the lives of the younger women. But what this text does mean is that the age and the wisdom and the maturity and the knowledge and the life experience of older women gives them the unique competence and position to disciple younger women to be wives, mothers, homemakers, and the Christian women that God has called them to be. You are placed in a unique position and competence to do this. Notice also that this text stresses that the younger women have a responsibility here as well. And your responsibility, younger women, is that of listening, receiving, and implementing the counsel and instruction and discipleship that you receive from older, godly women. Furthermore, this text emphasizes the fact that instead of complaining about what is wrong with the younger generations in their marriages and in their mothering and in their lives, the older women are to teach the younger women that which is good. And this brings me full circle back to the first three instructions that he gave. Be reverent in your behavior. Don't be a slanderer. Don't walk around with a critical spirit griping and complaining about the younger generations. Instead, get in the mix and get involved and make a difference. That's the emphasis. Somebody should say amen to that. I'll say it. Amen. That's it. And they're to teach what is good. Now, this word teach is much broader than simply standing to teach a Bible class. It is more than that. That can be a part of it, yes. But it is more than that. It is the teaching that takes place one-on-one. -on -one. 
It's the teaching that takes place in small groups. It's the teaching that takes place in the day-by-day example of living life inside of and outside of the home. Here's the reality. This discipling of the younger by the older is a biblical pattern that has been neglected to the great harm of the church. And it needs to be corrected. And I've been praying for all these weeks that I've been teaching on this text that God would use this text to get a hold of our church family and change how we're discipling and relating and interacting with each other so that our church would look more and more like Titus 2. Its absence in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is profound. And it needs to be changed. Ligon Duncan in his book, Women's Ministry in the Local Church, said this, We ought to have an intentional, deliberate approach to female discipleship because men and women are different. And these differences need to be recognized. They need to be taken into account and they need to be addressed in the course of Christian discipleship. Men and women face different kinds of temptations differently. Thus, the local church needs to address these distinctive temptations of men and women distinctively. And this is one purpose of intentional, deliberate ministry to women in the local congregation. It must be different. Younger women desperately need the role modeling, the teaching, the discipling, the insight, and the practical wisdom that older women can provide. Being more experienced in life and being more experienced in the Lord Older women can pass on a godly legacy that can reproduce itself in the generations to come. Author Susan Hunt refers to this Titus 2 model of discipleship as spiritual mothering. And listen carefully to me, ladies. She notes that it does not require that every woman, old or young, have a marriage and children of their own. You can be a spiritual mother and fulfill Titus 2, whether you're married or not and whether you have children or not. And this is how she defines it. Spiritual mothering takes place when a woman possessing faith and spiritual maturity enters into a nurturing relationship with another woman to encourage and equip her to live for God's glory. That's it. You're a Christian woman. You have spiritual maturity. You possess faith. You build a nurturing relationship with other women and pour into their lives. That's it. And notice what the text says. You're to teach what is good. The word good refers to instructions which are noble and they're excellent and they're lofty. In this context, it includes the teaching of what is holy and godly. Another author says it refers to the good things of God, the good things of life, things too great and things too significant for us to miss by pursuing that which is unimportant. Older women are to teach younger women the good things of life, the good things of God, the things that are most important so they won't grow up 
and have regrets in their life for the way they lived. And in the context of Titus 2, I think good means just what Titus 2 said. It means loving your husband, loving your children, being self-controlled, being pure, being kind, working at home, and being submissive to your husband. And friends, this list that I've just shown you in the text of Scripture is not a list that the world will give you. We're not talking about what the world thinks that women should do. We're talking about what God thinks that women should do. And God's opinion trumps the world every single time. And if you don't believe that at the outset, you're really going to struggle in a couple verses. Really going to struggle. And so we're to teach these good things. It is a good thing to love your family. It is a good thing to love your husband, not tear him down. It is a good thing to pour into your children. It is a good thing to be pure and kind and build a godly home. These are the good things of God and the good things of life. And I would add to it, friends, these are the things that will matter in eternity. And so we're to teach it. Clearly, unapologetically. I mean, you're going to have to decide if you're going to do it God's way or your way. If you're going to do it God's way or the world's way. If you're going to submit to Scripture or submit to something else. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, what is the authority over your life? Is it you or is it God? Is it you or is it Scripture? That's what we're talking about here. But not just teach what is good. Look at the text. They're to train. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's different than teach. It literally means to lead someone into a sound mind and self-control. It's related to the word sober-minded that is used in verse number 2. And it could be translated that they, that they may be trained by making sober-minded. Paul is teaching us that it's not just that older women should teach younger women how to fulfill certain responsibilities. They should. But it's also that older women help the younger women have the right spiritual and mental attitudes about all of these things. That they would be balanced in their thinking. That they would be sober-minded and self-controlled in their thoughts and in their attitudes about the instructions that God gives them for their lives. Paul is teaching Titus and us that train, the training that older women give younger women should be centered on helping them cultivate discernment and self-restraint and right priorities. Now, ladies, there's an implication in the text that you can't miss. It's, it's not there in black and white, but when you study and meditate on the passage, you walk away from this implication, and here it is. If an older woman is going to effectively teach and train a younger woman in all of these matters that Paul gives Titus in Titus chapter 2, the implication is that an older woman is living these truths herself. 
And so when you go into verse 4 and into verse 5, into the instructions of younger women, it, it should actually be labeled this way. These are instructions to older women and younger women. Because older women, how can you teach the younger women if you're not living what you're trying to teach? You can't. It's for both. That's why Ian Campbell said, older women then are not to be self-absorbed. They are not just to be thinking about themselves. They are to be concerned about others, particularly the younger generation. And in various different ways, formally and informally, by word and by example, they are to teach them what is good, so they too might live lives that are pleasing to God and a blessing to others. So in a healthy church, older women are worthy of respect, and they're treated with respect. And older women teach younger women how to live for God. Young women, let me ask you this morning. Do you have a desire to be guided and shaped by an older woman? If so, have you identified a godly older woman you can model your life after? And have you asked her if she'll invest in you? And if not, what are you waiting for? Why wouldn't you ask that question today? Older women, do you feel the weight of this text and its implications for your life? This is a weighty text. It's a weighty text for older men. It's a weighty text for younger men. It's a weighty text for older women. It's a weighty text for younger women. Older women, who has God brought into your life whom you could disciple and invest in, whom you could teach and whom you could train? How do you need to restructure your time and priorities to make this relationship happen? Older women, open up your life. Have younger women in your home. Take them with you when you run errands. Let them see the way you live. Let them see how you manage and care for your home. Let them see your marriage. Let them see your parenting. Let them see your failures and your successes. Read the Bible with them. Read good books with them. Pray with them. Answer their questions. Give correction. Give instruction. Encourage them to embrace biblical womanhood. That's it. That's the weight of the text. When we not only see instructions to older women, he begins the instructions to younger women at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. And I'm just going to give you one of those this morning, and we'll pick up from there next week. Look at what he says in the text. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. John MacArthur says of these two verses that no biblical standard is more viciously attacked today than the God-ordained role of women. And no passage is more ridiculed or reinterpreted within the church than these two verses. What we're embarking on is significant. It's weighty. 
And in verses 4 and 5, Paul specifies the good that older women are to teach the younger women. These verses serve a dual function. They not only help the older women understand their responsibility toward the younger, they also help the younger understand the kind of Christian women that they are to be. Now you'll notice in verses 4 and 5, look at the text carefully, that Paul is dealing with what is traditionally the case. Paul himself held a high view of singleness because of the special opportunity that it provides for Christian service. And yet he recognized that the majority of men and the majority of women would marry and build a home and have children. And so he is addressing the case that is traditional. Nothing more. He is not excluding anyone. As I mentioned to you, just because you may not be married and just because you may not have children, that doesn't mean you don't have a role to fulfill in Titus chapter 2. And so he gives six instructions, and here's the first one. Women are to love their husbands. Now, ladies, would you note with me carefully that this is the only place in Scripture where women are told to love their husbands. It's the only place. That means it's significant. Since it only occurs once, it is significant. He wants your attention. Normally, Scripture tells the men to love their wives. But in this instant, the wives are told to love their husbands. I want you to also note that this command to love your husband is not based upon emotion. It's based upon action. This command, love your husbands, has nothing to do with your emotions and how you feel about your husbands. It has everything to do with what you do in action toward your husband. The word love is phileo. Or brotherly love. It describes a committed love that godly wives choose to have for their husbands. It refers to willingly determined love that is not based on a husband's worthiness but on God's command and that is extended to the husband by his wife's affection and attentive heart. This word emphasizes the strength of companionship, the joy of friendship, and the intertwining of two lives together. This kind of love provides the foundation for a solid, secure marriage and home. So ladies, training yourself to love your husband involves doing loving actions for him whether or not you feel like doing them. It involves putting his interest in welfare above your own. It involves sacrificial giving of yourself for his sake, not for the sake of appreciation or returned love or favor. Here's the reality. Where there are the actions of love, the emotions of love will follow. Your loving actions will kick your emotions into gear and warm them up. Now, I should have said at the beginning of this because I can't give you every single nuance this morning. Lady, you know how hard I am on the men. Like, you've been here the last two weeks, right? You know that, right? But I'm going to have to tell you the truth about this text as it applies to you. 
and I can't cover every single nuance. And men, you should, like, if you're sitting here thinking, yes, yes, get them, pastor, get them. Like, that's the wrong attitude, right? This is why your wife's struggling to love you. Susan Hunt says in spiritual mothering, a wise woman will help a young woman to see the good qualities in her husband and to appreciate him. She will help the young woman to understand the differences between men and women and not to expect her husband to meet all of her needs. She will help a young woman recognize selfish attitudes in herself that are barriers to right relationships in her home. Ladies, would you look at the text carefully before you? Would you notice that there's no escape clause here? Even if the cold, callous, harsh, difficult husband that you live with is to be loved. There's no exception. It doesn't say, love him if he's loving you right. It doesn't say, love him if he's acting right. It says, love your husband. John MacArthur went so far as to say that loving your husband is a virtue and the failure to love your husband is a sin because this is a command from Scripture. I think Elizabeth George in her book, A Wife After God's Own Heart, is really helpful here, ladies. This is what she says about loving your husband. Your assignment from God is not to change your husband. It is to follow him, to love him, to assist him, and to minister to him. And you say, Pastor, well, that's easy for you to say. He, he acts a certain way when he comes to church. He acts a certain way when he talks to you. But when he's not talking to you and he's not at church, he acts like the devil. You have no idea the conditions I live under. It's easy for you to stand up there this morning and say these things. I'm not ignorant of your plight, ladies. I understand that. Why do you think I'm so hard on the men? I'm trying to challenge them, point them to God. Peter has a word of encouragement for you ladies who are living with an unbelieving, harsh, callous, difficult man. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, he's not a believer, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What Peter would say to you, ladies, is you have no idea how God might use the love that you display towards your husband to soften that cold, callous, difficult heart. And if I could just put in parentheses... If you're one of those men this morning and you're sitting by your wife, like, you, you should be humbled under the weight of the word of God and what the word of God is saying to your wife that she should do to you and you act like that with her. Like, if this won't get your attention to convict you of your sin and your need for Jesus of the condition of your rebellious, rebellious, cold heart? I'm not sure what will. Like, how could you sit there beside your wife and treat her that way and listen to this admonition of Scripture that God is giving to her? 
What's wrong with you? Lost my place. Ultimately, a wife should love her husband no matter how difficult he may be because of the saving love of God that he's displayed to the wife through his son, Jesus. Ladies, you love your husband out of the overflow of the love of God that he's given to you through his son, Jesus Christ. And when you recognize how God loved you and he gave his son for you, and you turned from your sin and you trusted in Christ so you could receive that love and that forgiveness and that saving grace and the love of God was deposited into your heart. That is how you love your husband. That's what Paul is showing you here. You love your husband out of the overflow of the love that you have for God and out of the overflow of the love that God has for you and that he's deposited into your life. Because John says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. And so you may be objecting to Scripture this morning saying, I could never love him like this. And I'm saying to you this morning, and Scripture is saying to you this morning, the only way you can love him like this is to first have received the love of God through his son, Jesus Christ, and then love him and act on that love out of the overflow of your life. You need Jesus and the love of God to love your husband this way. And as you meditate on the love that God has just demonstrated for you, ladies, how could it not soften your heart to love your husband? Don't you remember where you were when God found you and rescued you? And if he could love you when you were in that condition, can't you, through the love of God, love your husband in his condition? Susan Hunt said, love demands dying to self, and this makes no sense unless you've yielded your life to the sovereignty of God. That's it, ladies. How do you love your husband the way Scripture is telling you to? You line yourself up under the sovereign love of God. So could I help us apply this in close? Older and younger women who are married, have you studied your husband? Have you studied him in such a way that you know what makes him feel loved? Could you rattle off a list right now? This is what makes him feel loved. Application number two. There may be reasons why loving your husband is difficult. Or the difficulty to love your husband may lie within yourself and have nothing to do with him. This is where the wisdom of an older woman can help you. Young women, do you have an older woman who has the testimony of loving her husband well, teaching and training you how to love your husband? Do you? Application number three. Older women, the implication of this passage is not just that you will teach and train younger women, but that you will be practicing what you are teaching. Older women, are you loving your husband? Final application. Older and younger women, 
Have you considered why your husband may not feel loved? Is it possible that you only see his faults? That you only notice what he is not doing while ignoring the other areas of his life where he is making intentional effort? Ladies, is it possible this morning that you are slanderous in your speech towards your husband? commenting to other women about him in a very disrespectful light while at the same time overemphasizing your perceived righteousness in your behavior. Ladies, is it possible that you have allowed your marriage to become one of bargaining where you will give and show love to your husband in return for the actions that he does for you? Ladies, is it possible you are rejecting this command of Scripture because he's not treating you like the Bible says he should, and so you will intentionally withhold this love until he changes? Could I remind you that this text has nothing to do about your husband? It has everything to do about you as a woman. Where are the women of Titus chapter 2? Where are the godly older women who teach the younger women how to love and manage their homes and their children? There is a need in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for Titus 2 to be a practical, everyday reality. Let's pray.